Welcome. Thank you for listening to Clear Bible. Clear Bible is brought to you by New Joy Fellowship, by Life Together Churches, and by me, Tom Hilpert. We're really glad you're listening. We're in the middle of the sermon series on the book of 1 Samuel, and so this is 1 Samuel part 13. 1 Samuel part 13. If your destination today is not 1 Samuel part 13, go and find the appropriate sermon you want to listen to. All right. Sorry about that. I'll quit now. Um, I think we need to pray, so let's do that. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would speak to us today. And especially today, Lord, this is a this is a tough subject that we have to speak about right now, holy war. And I pray that you would help us to hear the truth. Use me to speak the truth and change whatever you need to change about what I say and change whatever you need to change about the way we hear it so that what we hear is your word. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. We're going to look at 1 Samuel chapter 15. If you want to turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 15, and I will read verses 1 through 23. We won't cover all of it in detail, but we kind of need the big picture to understand what's going on here. So 1 Samuel 15 starting at verse 1, and this is the Holman Christian Standard Bible. Samuel told Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you as king over his people Israel. Now listen to the words of the Lord. This is what the Lord of hosts says. I witnessed what the Amalekites did to the Israelites when they opposed them along the way as they were coming out of Egypt. Now go and attack the Amalekites and completely destroy everything they have. Do not spare them. Kill men and women, children and infants, oxen, sheep, camels, and donkeys. Then Saul summoned the troops and counted them at Telaim, 200,000 foot soldiers, 10,000 men from Judah. Saul came to the city of Amalek and set up an ambush in the wadi. He warned the Kenites, since you showed kindness to all the Israelites when they came out of Egypt, go on and leave. Get away from the Amalekites or I'll sweep you away with them. So the Kenites withdrew from the Amalekites. Then Saul struck down the Amalekites from Havilah all the way to Shur, which is next to Egypt. He captured Agag, king of Amalek, alive, but he completely destroyed all the rest of the people with the sword. Saul and the troops spared Agag and the best of the sheep, cattle, and choice animals, as well as the young rams and the best of everything else. They were not willing to destroy them, but they did destroy all the worthless and unwanted things. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel, I regret that I made Saul king, for he has turned away from following me and has not carried out my instructions. So Samuel became angry and cried out to the Lord all night. Early in the morning, Samuel got up to confront Saul, but it was reported to Samuel. Saul went to Carmel, where he set up a monument for himself. Then he returned around and went down to Gilgal. When Samuel came to him, Saul said, May the Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. Samuel replied, Then what is this sound of sheep and cattle that I hear? Saul answered, The troops brought them from the Amalekites and spared the best sheep and cattle in order to offer a sacrifice to the Lord your God, but the rest were destroyed. Stop, cried Samuel. Let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. Tell me, he replied. Samuel continued, Although you once considered yourself unimportant, have you not become the leader of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, 
and then sent you on a mission and said, Go and completely destroy the sinful Amalekites. Fight against them until you have annihilated them. So why didn't you obey the Lord? Why did you rush on the plunder and do what was evil in the Lord's sight? But I did obey the Lord, Saul answered. I went on the mission the Lord gave me. I brought back Agag, king of the Amalek, and I completely destroyed the Amalekites. The troops took sheep and cattle from the plunder, the best of what was set apart for destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. Then Samuel said, Does the Lord take pleasure in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? Look, to obey is better than sacrifice. To pay attention is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination, and defiance is like wickedness and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. All right, so there's a lot here, but there's something that's really hard to get around, that's difficult to get over. It is natural for anyone in the Western world hearing this today to say, okay, why was it necessary? Why did God say they had to destroy every living Amalekite, including men, women, children, babies, donkeys, cows, sheep, the whole thing, all of that? How can we accept that God wanted this and still believe that God is merciful and forgiving and loving? And there are a handful of passages like this in the Old Testament. Mostly they all refer to exactly the same thing, which is that the Israelites were supposed to do this to the tribes who were part of the land of Canaan. The Amalekites, as it turned out, they didn't live permanently in the Holy Land, but they, they were nomads and they came in and out. And many people who aren't Christians use this, first of all, to, to me and I think to most modern Western people, initially this, this sounds repulsive. It, it's very off-putting. It, it's, it's how could God be this way? And there are a lot of people who are not Christians who use this to criticize and mock the Bible. And so I think it's worth spending some time on the issue. Before we get into it, though, I want to point out that those who criticize the Bible because of this have the same problem. No matter what religion they are, no matter what worldview they are, everyone has the same problem as this. So, for example, in 21st century, you know, today, there is only one country in the world that says they are explicitly Buddhist. The government is Buddhist. They are, they are a Buddhist country and that is Myanmar, and they are brutally persecuting Christian and Muslim minorities in the country of Myanmar because of Buddhism. They are, they are justifying this brutal treatment of these minorities based on Buddhism. So that's a problem for Buddhists. And of course, uh, the Japanese Buddhists is a slightly different kind of Buddhism, Shinto Buddhism. They use that to justify the Second World War, and to justify many of the atrocities that they perpetuated during that war. Uh, Hinduism has a long history of wars to spread it and to suppress rival religions, and even today, Hindus persecute Christian and Sikh and Muslim minorities in India. We all know that Islam has a long history and a culture of war and terrorism in the name of Allah. Now, at this point, some atheists get smug. People like Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens and perhaps Sam Harris. 
and they they say things well this shows us that religion is the problem doesn't matter what religion it is all religion is the problem it's religion that causes these wars and these terrible atrocities and all the rest of that and if we could just get rid of religion we'd be fine however when it comes to genocidal extermination of enemies history shows that there is no one more relentless vicious and terrible than atheists some people don't know this but hitler and his core leaders were atheists and they were enchanted with the atheist philosopher nietzsche and and they they were inspired by atheist philosophy to exterminate the jews and and by darwinism to exterminate the jews and and the slavs and the roma and the other undesirables they were inspired by their atheism to do these things. Joseph Stalin was another inspired atheist. He was the communist dictator of the Soviet Union. And he, either directly or indirectly, ordered the killing of tens of millions of people. Mao Zedong, also an atheist, a communist, who caused the deaths of more than 100 million people. Pol Pot, Ho Chi Minh, also causing the deaths of millions. When you put it all together, in the 20th century alone, atheism inspired the brutal deaths of almost 200 million people, many of them women, children, and babies. So there is nobody who can get smug over this issue. If somebody says, ah, oh, that's a Christian problem. No, it's a Muslim problem. It's a Buddhist problem. It's a Hindu problem. It's a Jewish problem, of course, as well. Oh, no, no, that's, that's, that's a religion problem. No, it's also an atheist problem, bigger. So nobody can get smug about this. If this kind of thing makes the Bible invalid, it makes everything invalid. So that's nice, right? <laughs> we all have the same problem. But let's be honest, that doesn't fix it, right? That does, that's still, we're still left with the issue that this just seems unlike the God that we know. So we'll dig into this. <clears throat> I want to uh, I want to say one other thing before we we get down to detail, and that is this: Jesus makes it very clear that from his time onwards, the people of God are not to engage in physical war in His name. After Jesus, because of Jesus, the focus is on spiritual war, and nothing in the New Testament supports the idea of fighting a literal war in the name of God. In other words, the Christian reading of the Bible does not teach or endorse wars in the name of God. And in fact, the main reason that we have issues with this sort of thing is because of Christian values. I'm not saying everyone who is disturbed by this is a Christian. There are many people who aren't Christians who are also disturbed by these things in the Bible. But the reason we're disturbed is because we have a Christian view of the value of human life a view that came from the teachings of Jesus Christ. Now, I want to make sure we're, we're very, very clear about this. The Bible doesn't prohibit people from fighting wars. That's not what I'm saying. There, people can be soldiers, but we are not commanded to fight in the name of Jesus. There may be other legitimate reasons to participate in a war, but eliminating non-Christians or converting people by force are not legitimate reasons for Christians to fight. 
Now, some people say, well, you know, what, what about the religious wars? You know, the wars around the time of the Reformation, 15th, 16th centuries. And, you know, what about uh, the, the Spanish Inquisition, same time period? Uh, what about the Crusades a little bit earlier? Yes, Christians did perpetrate some atrocities in the name of Jesus, and they did so in contradiction to the teaching of Jesus. In other words, they maybe claimed to be fighting in the name of Jesus, but those wars were clearly against the teaching of Jesus himself. And we'll talk about that a little bit more next time. I'll give you some specifics of what Jesus said about this stuff. But let's get to it. <clears throat> Throughout the history of both Judaism and Christianity, God's commands to for the Israelites to destroy the Canaanites and the Amalekites, like in our text today, they've been understood to be severely limited. These wars were meant to be only against specific peoples at specific places and specific times. The texts themselves make it clear this is not a general endorsement of war in the name of God. It's not a general thing, go out and, and you know, make people for me by fighting wars, eliminate anyone who doesn't believe against me, who doesn't believe in me, and convert people by force. That is not there. That's not in the text. The overwhelming majority of both Jewish and Christian theologians for the past 3,000 years have seen these commands as historically and geographically limited to these specific instances. In other words, even in the Old Testament, so I've said Jesus makes it really clear we're not to fight that kind of war in his name. But even in Old Testament times, this was not a general endorsement of holy war or war in the name of God. Secondly, and this, is, this really helped me to understand this, the language of killing every single man, woman, and child is not literal. It's not meant to be taken literally. It's a figure of speech. And this kind of hyperbolic exaggeration was actually very typical of ancient Middle Eastern leaders. Uh, for example, Tutmosis III, Pharaoh of Egypt, about 500 years before King Saul, boasted that when he fought the army of Mitanni, they were annihilated totally like those now not existent. That's a quote there. Quote, annihilated totally like those now not existent, end quote. But historians know that actually... At least some of Mitanni's soldiers survived, and in fact, enough of them survived to fight in subsequent battles. About 200 years later, Ramses II, pharaoh of Egypt, uh, announced that he had killed the entire force, quote, the entire force of the Hittites. However, the truth was he just merely had defeated them. And then in about 835 B.C., so 170-odd years or so after the time of King Saul, the king of Moab declared that the northern kingdom of Israel had utterly perished for always. But actually, we know that that is not true at that point in time. The northern kingdom of Israel survived for another, oh, 100 or so years before the Babylonians, or not the Babylonians, the Assyrians destroyed them, the northern kingdom. So this language of killing every man, woman, and child is not meant to be understood at face value. So you might say, well, this is hard. I mean, it spells it out. It sure sounds like it means every man, woman, and child. So, you know, what's the deal? I think it's a little bit similar to how we talk about sporting events in, in our day and age. A sports announcer might say something like this. Uh, 
Last Sunday, the Seahawks obliterated the Rams 42-3. Now, when we hear that, we know that the, the, the Seahawks won an impressive victory, but we also know it wasn't literal obliteration for the Rams. You know, obliteration means blotted out, completely wiped out, gone. We know that actually, even though the Seahawks, quote-unquote, obliterated the Rams, there's still a team called the Rams. None of them are dead. There's still a functioning team. The team itself still exists. What, what it really means, of course, is that they won an impressive victory. So in the same way, kill every man, woman, child, do not spare them, is typical language for the situation. It's exaggeration for illustration. And the people at that time would have understood that. They would have known that God didn't mean it to be a literal command to kill every single human, including women and babies. Now, the command to animals is different, and I'll talk about that in a minute. I want to make sure we're clear, though. It's not that the writers of the Bible were being deliberately deceptive. They were using words and idioms that the people at that time knew were not meant to be taken literally. Just like when we hear the Seahawks obliterated the Rams, we know the word obliterated is not meant to be taken literally. Somebody, you know, 3,000 years from now would say, oh my gosh, they're killing each other in these games. They're not killing each other. This is just the way we talk. Same way there, they weren't killing literal babies. It's the way they talk. And actually, even today, we should be able to figure this out all we have to do is keep reading the book of 1 Samuel. <clears throat> so I'm going to quote to you a piece I read just a minute ago, 1 Samuel 15, verses 7 through 8. Then Saul struck down the Amalekites from Havilah all the way to Shur, which is next to Egypt. He captured King Agag, king of Amalek, alive, but he completely destroyed all the rest of the people with the sword. That's what it says. I just read that to you a few minutes ago. It says Paul completely excuse me, Saul completely destroyed all the rest of the Amalekites with the sword. Now fast forward to 1 Samuel chapter 30. Same book, same writer. He says this, David and his men arrived in Ziklag on the third day. The Amalekites had raided the Negev and attacked and burned down Ziklag. Wait a minute here. I thought all of the Amalekites were completely destroyed. And yet here they are now with an army big enough to mount a raid and burn down a town. Is this writer an idiot who can't even remember what he wrote before? He can't keep track of it? No. He is a typical Middle Eastern writer using a typical Middle Eastern idiom to describe military conquests. So we can see for ourselves this language of killing every human being is a figure of speech. The writer himself shows us that by saying they're all dead, and then, whoops, there's some of them who are alive to come and complete a raid. The all dead does not mean literally. By the way, included with these commands to wipe out all the peoples, I'll read this to you in a minute, is, is a command forbidding the Israelites from marrying any of these people. Now, if they're supposed to kill every man, woman, and child, who are they going to marry? But by including this command, you know, destroy, their, destroy them, um, you know, and then don't intermarry with them. Well, if, if you destroy them, you wouldn't intermarry with them, right? Why would God include that command? Because it's not meant to be taken literally. So 
If it's not meant to be taken literally, how do we understand this? I don't think it's that difficult. It's a lot like asking, how do we understand the phrase, the Seahawks obliterated the Rams? It means a very decisive victory, a convincing, commanding victory, a victory that utterly uh, you know, sets the other team at a horrible low point, discourages them, just, just, just about, you know, makes them pointless as a team or makes them feel pointless as a team. That's how we understand the Seahawks Rams obliteration. And so in the Bible, when it's talking about destroying every single one, he killed all of the Amalekites, he destroyed them all. What this means is a very decisive victory. It means, so when God commands this type of holy war, He's saying that the Israelites are to utterly defeat the enemies in question. And it spells out, I'll read this to you in a minute, there should be no peace treaties, no intermarriage. Again, there's no point in that command unless there would still be some living. And the Israelites were to continue the warfare until the Canaanite tribes no longer existed as distinct societies. Now, let me help us understand that. One useful analogy might be the way Germany and Japan were defeated at the end of the Second World War. There were many Germans and Japanese alive after the end of the Second World War, right? Uh, millions, in fact. But the Allies obliterated them, if I could use that word, completely destroyed them, if I could use that word, um, leveled their towns and cities. You see what I'm saying? We, we use these types of words anyway when we talk about war. The Allies utterly destroyed and defeated the armies of Germany and Japan, but also their economies and their institutions and any ability they had to sustain themselves as independent nations. They dismantled the culture of Germany and Japan. Specifically, they dismantled these cultures of pride and conquest that had led those nations to start the war. Both of those countries were then built from the ground up with an entirely different cultural ethos. And this is exactly what God is commanding the Israelites to do. Wipe them out, meaning wipe them out as a distinct society. It doesn't require killing every single person to do that. It's, it's create a situation where these people are, are, have to assimilate into the people of God where they can't influence God's people against God. And again, I want to emphasize, the Bible does not command the Israelites to do this with anyone except the tribes that are in the promised land. Now, the Amalekites, they kind of come in and out of the promised land, but they were coming in and out, and so they were exposed to the Israelites, and they actually uh, hated the Israelites, as it turned out. But this kind of holy warfare is only ever commanded with specific groups of people who were living in the promised land. And the reason is to protect the true worship of the Lord so that God's people would remain his people. Here's the original command from Deuteronomy chapter 7, 1 through 6. When the Lord your God brings you into the land you're entering to possess, and he drives out many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and powerful than you. And when the Lord your God delivers them over to you and you defeat them, you must completely destroy them. Make no treaty with them and show them no mercy. Do not intermarry with them. 
Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons because they will turn your sons away from me to worship other gods. Then the Lord's anger will burn against you and he will swiftly destroy you. Instead, this is what you are to do to them. Tear down their altars, smash their sacred pillars, cut down their Asherah poles, burn up their carved images, for you are a holy people belonging to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be his own possession out of all the peoples of the face of the earth. So <clears throat> the idea is they need to destroy these cultures. They need to destroy the worship of false gods and destroy the culture to such an extent that the worship of false gods does not happen anymore in the Holy Land. Out of all the people in the world at the time, only the people of Israel as a nation worshipped the one true God. And I think it might be hard for us to realize, <clears throat> excuse me, in this day and age, what that meant. Our whole world has been deeply influenced by some of the basic messages of Christianity. Uh, maybe not salvation per se, but the value of human life is, is a huge one that comes from Christianity and spread all over the world. But back in those days, that wasn't there. The idea that there was only one true God was considered ludicrous. The morality of the Israelites, not murdering, not committing adultery, not stealing, being honest, it was considered weak and pointless. And so there is a big danger that this lonely little group of people who worship the one true God would be led away from that because of the influence of their neighbors and the peoples living around them. If the Israelites did not resoundingly defeat the pagans who lived around them, they were in danger of being led astray to the worship of false gods, leaving no one in the world who knew the truth about the one true God. So the command is for them to completely defeat the people of Canaan so that they no longer functioned as separate ungodly societies in the Holy Land. And that doesn't require that every single one of them is killed, every single Canaanite human being, but rather that they cease to function as separate cultures in the land of Israel and instead become assimilated into the nation of Israel and worship the one true God. And the commands for this were written in this exaggerated Middle Eastern language that was very typical for the time. And just to make sure I'm really clear, the Canaanites had the option to convert to the worship of the Lord and join the Israelites. They, they were welcome to do so, and some of them did. There was Rahab, who lived in Jericho, who converted to the worship of the Lord. Uh, there was one of David's mighty men. We'll, we'll come across him before too long. One of, one of David's right-hand men, his 30 great warriors that helped David and supported him and stuck with him, was Uriah the Hittite. Hittites were one of these Canaanite tribes that were supposed to be wiped out. What's going on here? He was a Hittite, but he follows the Lord, and he was loyal to David. The problem was not the individuals. The problem was those ungodly pagan cultures, and it was those cultures that had to be utterly destroyed. And this is one reason why it was so wrong for Saul to keep the Amalekite king. Right, A king is a unifying figure for a culture. A king is a cultural institution. The people needed to stop seeing themselves as the Amalekites, but if Saul kept their king alive, they would still have hope to be, a, be one nation. It would preserve some of their sense of cultural identity, which is exactly what the Lord is trying not to do. Also, 
the Bible is radically different from other ancient Middle Eastern sources when it comes to holy war in that the Israelites were commanded to kill all the animals and all the goods belonging to the defeated foe. This is wildly different from other ancient Middle Eastern wars. And I do think this part was meant literally, as it shows, because Saul was in big trouble for keeping the animals alive as well as keeping the king alive. And the killing of the animals sounds, you know, strange to us and to us modern readers. I mean, what, what could a sheep do wrong? <laughs> what, what's, how could a donkey be offensive to God? I mean, what's up with this? In those days, animals represented wealth. Everyone lived by farming. The more animals you had, the wealthier you were. And typically in warfare, the, the animals of the defeated people were seized and they increased the wealth of the victors. They enriched them immensely. But by commanding that all the animals be killed and all the loot destroyed, it meant that these wars did not benefit the Israelites. In other words, God was saying, I am not telling you to go to war to get rich. You don't have that endorsement from me. Whenever I tell you to go to war, it's because you need to be the distinct people of God and you need to protect your cultural identity and you need to stop the terrible things that these peoples are doing. <clears throat> but you don't get to get rich out of it. So no one would fight that way, destroying all the animals in order to benefit themselves. The only reason to do it is because God commanded it. God's command kept them from the temptation of fighting just to get rich. And then secondly, this, killing all the animals and destroying all the goods makes much more sense if, as I've said, they did not literally kill all of the human beings. Because what happens is this, the people who are left behind will have no wealth. Animals are wealth, right? The people who were not killed will have no economic base from which to rebuild their culture or to influence the Israelites. Destroying the economic base of a people group means they have to assimilate into the more powerful society. And again, this is exactly what the Allies did to Germany and Japan at the end of the Second World War. They completely destroyed their economies. Now Saul, his problem is that he didn't trust that God knew what he was doing. Saul wanted to enrich himself and to enrich his men. And so he kept the animals. And his claim that he, he kept them for the sacrifices, I mean, I think we all know that's just a face-saving lie. And I think he kept the king alive because he was afraid that if his men started killing kings, they might think, oh, maybe Saul's not off limits either. If we can just kill a king, well, maybe we could just kill Saul. I think that's what Saul was thinking. I don't think that's what his men were thinking. In short, Saul disobeyed because he was not willing to trust the Lord. He didn't understand why he couldn't get rich, why he couldn't make his men rich, and he didn't understand why he couldn't sort of protect the reputation of kings or protect the idea that kings are off limits. And that's the point of the text, and that's the part I think we need to focus on. Obviously, I think we should focus on how we can be different from Saul. The point is, do we trust God when we don't understand what he wants us to do? Do we trust God when we don't understand what he's doing? Do we believe he has a reason even if we can't grasp it? Now, I don't want to pretend that we've solved all the problems about holy war. In fact, we'll do a whole 
different message on this very topic just to make sure we've we've covered all the ground it's not all neatly tied up in a bow we can see you know that this passage is really about Saul and his issues of obedience and trust but that doesn't necessarily answer all of our questions the holy war thing is still difficult to wrap our heads around and I think maybe we're dealing with things that we might not ever fully understand and even though we may not ever fully understand God when he commands holy war even if it's a constrained and limited war even if it's not killing everybody it's certainly killing some people we can't deny that God is gracious and loving and forgiving Jesus commanded his followers to love their enemies and forgive them he told his followers not to fight back when he was arrested he said his kingdom wasn't of this world and he allowed his enemies to kill him he suffered in ways we cannot comprehend to save anyone including by the way the Amalekites who is willing to put their trust in the Lord author Paul Copan writes this since God was willing to go through all of this for our salvation the Christian can reply to the critic while I can't tidily solve the problem of the Canaanites I can trust a God who has proven his willingness to go to such excruciating lengths and depths to offer rebellious human beings reconciliation and friendship however we're to interpret or respond to some of the baffling questions raised by the Old Testament we shouldn't stop with the Old Testament if we want a clearer revelation of the heart and character of God though a Canaanite Canaanite punishing God strikes us as incompatible with graciousness and compassion we cannot escape a, rede a redeeming God who loves his enemies not simply his friends Matthew 5 43 through 48 indeed he allows himself to be crucified by his enemies in hopes of redeeming them and again that's Paul Copan his book is is God a moral monster so let's be different than Saul today. Let's entrust ourselves to a God who has proved his trustworthiness and his love by dying for us. And as part of that trust, let's obey him. Let's trust him enough to obey him even when we don't fully understand his ways. Let's pray. Lord, it is hard for us sometimes to wrap our heads around things that you do or you don't do. It gets difficult sometimes to obey you when we don't see a reason for what you're asking us to do. Or when what you're asking us to do even seems a little weird. I pray, Lord, that you would give us such a complete trust in you, not an understanding, but a trust, so that when we don't understand, we will still obey because we know that you are good and that you love us. Give us the strength to do that now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.